You're listening to Dr. Tony Nader, the podcast, dedicated to exploring the full potential of human physiology and mind with focus on ancient and modern techniques of self-development. Spend some time with Dr. Nader, who is leading the way in the science of consciousness, and begin your journey to better understanding the relationship of mind and body, consciousness, and physiology right now. In this episode, Dr. Nader talks about how in transcending, people experience not a specific object, but consciousness itself. In this groundbreaking talk, Dr. Nader goes deep into what consciousness is. I want to start by highlighting something which is essential and which um, is important to realize. Uh, and that is consciousness. What is consciousness? It's one question that I was asked. I was touring uh, some long time ago, uh, 15, 20 years ago, and giving talks, and we were in the UK. They have consciousness-based education, and uh, one of the students in the upper school asked me a simple question. What is consciousness? It's not an easy question to answer. You know. What is consciousness? It's a very big um, problem for modern science today to investigate what is this abstract thing which we call consciousness, awareness. We, every one of us knows that she or he is conscious. But one thing we don't know even is that even our neighbor is actually conscious. <laughs> Theoretically speaking, you know, we could be all zombies except for those who are looking at us. Because you, know. you can behave exactly like, you know, you do normally, but are you conscious of everything the same way I am? How can you tell? How can you tell that your neighbor is conscious? They behave like this, they smile like this. You know, robots can be created that actually would respond to anything. You can pinch them, they say, ow, ouch. <laughs> you can, you know, uh, say something uh, like a joke and they can laugh. It's all programmed. They can, uh, you know, they can make believe they sleep, they, when they're hungry, they go to the, to the plug, they plug themselves and to get some power. And, uh, you know, it's a very interesting phenomenon, this consciousness, because everything we know is physical, is material. And there is one thing we can't really grasp in modern science, and that is consciousness, awareness. The awareness of red, for example, is something. You can say, this is red, and um, a robot can say that too. It just analyzes the wavelengths of the color, and it has a built-in pre-programmed system that makes it say, this is red. But the human being, is aware of the redness of the red, is sensitive to the redness of the red. 
One thing, for example, even scientists have difficulty with is pain. What is pain? You know, does a robot feel pain? Can a robot ever feel pain? There is something that some tissues are squeezed, some neurotransmitters are released, some electrical activity goes through certain nerves, you know, pain is transmitted through C-fibers, for example, a specific type of fibers in the nervous system. And when there is activity in these fibers, it goes to the brain, and then you experience pain. But what is pain? What is pain? It's so subjective, it's so personal, it's so out of this world. Yet we live in it, we experience it, we know it, we, we go through it. And we go through happiness, we go through love, we go through passion, we go through emotions. And science completely is out, unable to even put its finger either by near or by far on this phenomenon. So much so that science has never actually wanted to discuss consciousness because it was considered to be out of the realm of the physical. In the science of consciousness, there have been some who have coined a word. There is an easy problem of consciousness and there is a difficult problem of consciousness. The easy problem of consciousness is that one day we will be able to discover what triggers in the nervous system the experience of pain. What triggers the experience of feelings, of love, of emotions, of expectations, of disappointment, of depression. And you can trace these uh, from the objective phenomenon that has happened and see how it goes through the nerves, gets into the brain, where exactly the transmitters go, which parts of the brains are activated, and you can tell that, no, no, this is the experience of pain. This is the uh, experience of a flower. And it, this is happening today. You know, there are today ways to analyze the brain activities in a very sophisticated way. And you can almost tell what the person is thinking. You know, you can look at the patterns that are happening in the brain and you can say, she is thinking of playing tennis. He is thinking of playing golf. She is going to the supermarket. He is going to the jewelry store. And like that, even these little things, you can tell because there are patterns in the brain and places where things happen. Now, to figure out all of these things is very, very, very difficult, ultimately. It's extremely difficult. And yet, this is the easy problem in terms of consciousness. <laughs> the difficult problem is the problem of how does this translate into emotions, feelings that, is, that are subjectively experienced. I mean, emotions and feelings as far as neurotransmitters secreted in the gut and you know, you have your stomach kind of cramp when you have pain or you have fear or anxiety manifests itself here and there. You can study all the biological changes that happen, but you cannot 
pinpoint how at the end of the day the individual experiences consciousness. So there have been in the past 15 years a lot of studies about consciousness and trying to understand consciousness and very top minds are trying to associate consciousness with quantum mechanics, with you know tubules in the brain, with in the cells, with uh, activities that are more on the on the quantum field levels, on different different levels. But I can tell you the conclusion of all of these studies and many papers and millions and millions of dollars spent researching that field. And the conclusion is today, we have absolutely no idea. <laughs> <laughs> we don't even have a glimpse of an idea. <laughs> we don't even have anything that comes close to an idea. So, we come back to the question, what is actually consciousness? What is this thing, consciousness? Does it exist? Does consciousness exist? Some scientists have resolved the problem by saying consciousness doesn't exist. <laughs> That's it, we solve it, you know. It's you are fooling yourselves, you know. It's consciousness doesn't exist, you're fooling yourself. But one asks the other question is, when consciousness goes, what remains? Did you ever ask yourself this question? When consciousness goes, what remains? Anyone can tell me what remains? Think about it. It's important to think about it for a minute. When you're not conscious, what is there in the universe for you? Nothing. Absolute nothingness. Nothing exists. When there is no consciousness, there is nothing. Only later when you wake up, you know, if you are sleeping or hit on the head by something, <laughs> and you suddenly wake up, you find the world is as it was before, and you say, well, the world must have been there when I was sleeping. And therefore you say, then it was always there. But when you didn't have consciousness, nothing was there. Absolutely nothing was there. Okay? So, you depend on your consciousness for appreciating anything. Because it's not like something is there, but something is not there, and I could have a glimpse of something. There is absolutely nothing. When there is no consciousness, there is nothing. Which means for us as human beings, what is the one thing we are absolutely 100% sure of that it exists? Death, we, we, it happens, but what happens with death, you know, we don't know. What happens with death, we know that at least that body is not conscious at that time, and we are observing. But from your perspective as an individual, um, what is the one thing you're sure of? You're sure of that there is 
discontinuation of the physical activity of the body at this time, which you are calling death. But what happens? Is there still something else after death? We don't know. So we are not sure what death is exactly. And we don't, we're not sure that death actually means something after the body stops functioning. It does mean that this particular body is gone, but is there something that continues after that? This is a big question. But irrespective of this, which is a good answer in, in, any, in one way, which means nothingness is, you're saying that nothingness we are sure of because, but what else that is not nothingness <laughs> we are sure of? We are sure that there are flowers on this chair. We are sure we are in the meeting. You know, what are you talking about? We're sure there is a building here. We're sure all of these are real. Okay, but how real they are? Now you look at the reality and you start asking, what is reality? What is real? and what is not real, okay? Is there anything now between you and me other than air and some air conditioning and some light? Is there anything? What? There is music. You can't hear it? <laughs> Take a radio, put it here, turn it to the right frequency. You can hear all kinds of music. You can hear all kinds of music, classical music, opera music. You can hear uh, hip-hop or whatever you like. So where is the music is there? There are people moving around here all the time. You don't believe me? Turn the television. It picks up the signal with the antenna and it can show you a football game can show it a tennis game, can show you Saturday Night Live, can show you, you know, somebody tweeting, can show you somebody <laughs> yelling, <laughs> somebody in love, somebody's in a crash accident. Millions of things you can see, they're all here. What is this reality? Is this your reality? No. Now, if I have a little doggy here, and somebody was whistling at a certain frequency that we cannot hear, you can find the doggy jumping around because the dog have a much higher frequency sensitivity in their ears and they can pick up those frequencies. You have a bat, it picks up radar waves, it doesn't see like we see. So what is the reality for the dog? What is the reality for the bat? What is the reality for the jellyfish? Why should we assume that reality is as we see it? If you are a little bit colorblind or a lot colorblind, you can be the same person sitting here, you know, hiding. Oh, I don't see colors. I'm not going to raise my hand to say I don't see red or green. I can raise my hand. I have a little colorblindness. <laughs> And I don't see green always very well, or red very well. I see it. I know the sleeves are green. But there are some 
people I have met in medicals, they are completely normal, 100%. Everything is perfect, intelligence-wise, appreciation-wise, emotions-wise. But they just can't see red or green. Everything looks gray to them, absolutely gray. So are the trees actually gray or this person is deficient? Who is right? They are right or am I right? Maybe the bat is right, maybe the dog is right. Maybe the eagle who sees something from a very far distance that we cannot see, maybe they are right. Maybe if I take a machine that can detect the electromagnetic waves, it will tell me that this room is full of solid things. If I take a machine, if my body, suppose our body was made out of, instead of eyes and ears, it's made out of some sensors that can detect gravitational field, the gravity. We would be in solid, sitting in solid space here. We can't move because <laughs> gravity is everywhere and we will just see opaque. Everything will be opaque. So what does this tell us? Reality depends on our perception. Our vision of what reality is, is completely 100% based on the apparatus that we have and that shows us things in a special way. That special way is in no way an absolute way. It's in no way a universal way. Besides the fact that we all, you know, have different appreciation of things, different emotions, different feelings that makes us, you know, see somebody who comes and you say, oh, this is a very bad person. And then your friend says, no, 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 he's a fantastic person. He's absolutely great. Why do you say that? So the appreciation of ourselves, our each other, the appreciation even of the physical reality depends on our physical apparatus. Therefore, what is real and unreal is relative, this is why we use the term relative, to who we are, to our system, to our physiology. Okay, now we can improve our perception by transcending, <laughs> removing the stresses, because we also have clouded perceptions and we have clouded evaluations under different circumstances and we can clear up our system and improve our perception. But this question on the other hand that I'm asking about reality has been investigated by scientists. So scientists have had the same questions that we are asking now and they try to find what is actually real what is needed for things to be real. So they were going to say, what are things made of? After all, okay, the flower is perceived like this colors based on the eye's ability to see certain frequencies. If we were able to see beyond the violet and red, we would see the ultraviolet or the infrared. And therefore, you know, when somebody moves in the room, you will see a halo around them because that will be the infrared uh, radiation. It is there, it is heat, it is there, but your eyes just need a little bit of frequency shift 
and then you would see a halo. The person would not look like we are looking at each other now, but there will be a warm thing around it, a halo around us. And so they said, okay, these are things, but can we look at the reality from a very profound perspective? So let's look what is matter made of. And we know the story all as meditators made of, matter is made out of molecules, molecules are made out of atoms, atoms are made out of elementary particles, elementary particles are made out of energy fields, energy fields are unified into an ultimate unified field of natural law. So what is everything made of? Some energy field some energy field. If your system had the ability to detect energy, it would see everything as energy fields. There will be fluctuations, you know, <laughs> but there will be a sci-fi movie, you know, where everything is like movement of energy fields, like that. And ultimately, if you were able to see the origin of these fields, you would come to a unified field where you see absolute pure existence, flat, pure energy potential. Max Planck, who was the greatest physicist studying, you know, all this quantum mechanics and all of that, he has said, after spending all my life studying the physical reality, I can tell you one thing. There is nothing physical. It's all something else. So, I didn't forget my question to you. What is real? What is something we are sure of? When science comes and tells us, you are seeing things from your own perspective. And besides, if you want to go deeper into science, you find that these fields and these particles and electrons and molecules and whatever, even on the fine elementary level, they actually never commit themselves to be what they are until you observe them. This is a complicated concept. There's no need to you know, try to detail it. You have to take my word for it. <laughs> you have to take my word for it. But they've done repeatedly and repeatedly and repeatedly these studies, and it's mind-blowing. When you go to the electron, and you eave the electron by itself, there is no electron sitting anywhere. There is a potential for the electron to be here or here or in Mars. The same one electron, or in another galaxy. Literally, literally, when you put your attention on the electron, it gathers itself quickly and it appears right there as if it you know, has to be here. And it could appear here or here, it has a probability of appearing on the right or on the left, on top or on bottom. And depending on the circumstances, this probability is more or less defined. But no particle exists without an observer to observe it. It doesn't exist. It's the observer 
that makes the particle collapse into a specific position in time and in space. This is called the Copenhagen interpretation and it was a big discussion between the quantum mechanics people and the general relativity people. We don't need to go into that. <laughs> but it's a big thing because Einstein could not believe that you needed an observer for things to be like that. So he was telling Bohr, what do you think? You think that when you are not looking at the moon, it is not there? Could it be possible? This would be amazing. This would be like, you know, like God was a crazy kind of creator. <laughs> And what uh, Bohr was telling uh, Einstein is, Albert, don't tell God what to do, <laughs> <laughs> what he should do or should not do. <laughs> this example is just to illustrate that reality is made out of an observer and an object of observation connected in one way or the other. Reality is different for different observers. We create our reality. We create our universe. We make it happen. And so it's all our creation. And what is therefore real, what is ultimately the reality, our proposition is consciousness is the ultimate reality. So there is a field, and that field is a field of pure being, pure consciousness. And it is that field which appears as many. It appears as many. How does it do that? This is some of the Vedic science that Marshi teaches, and it's good as the meditators and siddhas and governors that we review a little bit this thing. So the reality we are going to say is consciousness. Why? First, because all this bragging about physical reality and all the physicists paying, spending trillions and trillions of dollars looking into matter and what is matter made of and how it is made of and how it works, led us to Planck telling us there is no matter. There is nothing physical, it's something beyond. All this quantum mechanical and quantum field research tell us you need an observer or you need an interaction so that the objects appear as they appear and collapse as they collapse. Okay, so matter doesn't really kind of is as we thought it is. It depends on an interaction, on an observer. But we all agree, you know, that there is flowers on this, there are flowers on this table, but it's because we have similar apparatus, we have similar consciousness, we are together, and that is the reality of our observation. But the essence of this material depends on us observing it to actually collapse into what it is. I am a little bit expanding the idea, it's much more complex than this, but, um, 
we have to illustrate it this way. The bottom line is truly that everything is an ultimate field and that what we call matter depends on the interaction between us and the other aspects of that field which collapses into what we call reality. So from the perspective of physics and physical reality, this is what we find. From the perspective of consciousness, what we find is this is the one thing we can be sure about. This is the only one thing we can be sure about, is that we are conscious. That thing which is so amazing and so complicated to analyze physically and scientifically is the only thing that we as humans can be sure about. We are sure that we are conscious. When we are not conscious, nothing exists. We are not observing anything, you know. Who tells you that when you fall asleep, the whole universe doesn't go into, <laughs> into non-committed, existential, pure being? The moon vanishes, the earth, the universe goes away, all your friends, relatives, the tables, the house is gone. Who tells you? You tell yourself when you wake up in the morning, if somebody wakes you up, you look at it and you see it, it's there. But who tells you that you have not just created it and recreated it and you recreate it all the time? I'm saying this as um, a bit of an exaggeration. But just to illustrate the point and to open and broaden our awareness about reality and non-reality, so we are not caught into a, between quotation mark, hard and fast reality, and that we know we can do anything, change anything, transform anything from the level of consciousness. So what is consciousness? If we want to go back and answer the question, what is consciousness? And I have written an article in a mathematics journal and the title of the article was Consciousness is all there is. Consciousness is all there is. There is nothing else. Consciousness is all that there is. Now, does it mean the table doesn't exist? Does it mean the moon does not exist? Does it mean that I as an individual entity, personal qualities and personal abilities does not exist? No, it doesn't mean at all that we don't exist. We exist. But what we are made of is consciousness. The stuff of reality is consciousness. Okay? This is a proposal. Now, it is complicated to try to say how then this consciousness creates this or makes this appearance as matter. See, we have turned the problem around. The problem was, how does matter create consciousness? You start with some elementary particles, they come together, they create 
you know, atoms, molecules, then the molecules come together, they create cells, the cells come together, they create tissues, the tissues create organs, then organ systems, we have a brain, very complex and electrical activity in it, and this brain creates consciousness. How can it create consciousness? This is the question which is, eludes every scientist and every philosopher. And then the philosophers were saying, okay, let's solve the problem by saying there are two things. There is the spiritual reality, the consciousness side, and there is the material reality, two different things. This is Descartes, huh? Descartes dualism. There are two things and we solve the problem. But the question is how these two things talk to each other? You know, how do they happen to be able to, to communicate? One is non-material, one is material. How does the material talk to the non-material? And how the non-material, spiritual or consciousness side can talk to the material? That's the crux of the problem. So the scientist said, well, let's eliminate then consciousness. Because material then creates consciousness. Somehow one day we will find out. Or consciousness is just simply an illusion. That's one, one problem, one way to solve the problem. But we're not happy with this because we just said the only thing we're sure of is consciousness and the physicist is telling us matter doesn't exist. So what are you talking about? You know? How can that which does not exist, matter, create that which either exists or doesn't exist or there is nothing that exists, you know? That is where the illusion and all these things comes. Maya, they call it. That is one way to look at the problem. But if you look at the problem the other way around, you say consciousness creates matter, then you also have a problem. How can consciousness create matter? How is it possible for consciousness to create matter? If matter cannot create consciousness, we have a simple solution. We say consciousness creates matter. But then we have a new problem. How does consciousness create matter. Because matter, we see it. It's there. It's real. Okay, we touch it. Our consciousness is touching, is feeling. So we can't say we're living in a 3D holographic universe. We could, but you know, it's, it's really, really there. We feel the pain, we feel the joys, we feel everything. And there is a mechanism by which consciousness creates what looks like matter. The mechanism is based on the nature of consciousness. What is the nature of consciousness? What is its essential nature? To expand? Um, well, uh, you could say, but when you say consciousness, why should you say to expand? You know, why should it expand? Expansion is a phenomenon. And it's not obvious that this phenomenon is part of being conscious. What's the nature of consciousness? Yeah. It's, it's called consciousness, you know, for some reason. We could have called it uh, love or we could have called it... Uh, passion or and this, the essence of life is bliss or whatever 
which is fine, and we'll find that these are real and they exist <laughs> in consciousness. But when you say consciousness, we are saying it's something that is conscious, to be conscious. So the nature of consciousness autom automatically means it is to be conscious. Okay? What is it conscious of? Of itself. Because there is nothing but consciousness. It is only capable or able to be conscious of itself because there is nothing else to, to be conscious of. But here comes a phenomenon where consciousness now is seeing itself as an observer and an observed. Without an observer and an observed, you are not conscious of anything. You don't know anything. To know something, there must be a knower and a known. Okay? Here are the flowers. Here are myself, is myself. <laughs> and I am looking at the flowers. Then I know the flowers, I see the flowers. The flowers are there. If I have no connection with the flowers whatsoever, like through my eyes, because it's very dark, I cannot tell the flowers that, that the flowers exist. Okay? So to have an experience, you need an experiencer and an experienced, an object of experience. Are we all okay on that? Because without an object of experience, there is no experience. There is nothing to experience. Without a subject who is experiencing, there is no experience also. And without a process that links the observer to the observed, there is no experience either. So what do you need in order for any experience to happen? You need a subject an object, and a process that links the subject to the object. Between quotation marks, this is why our phrases are made out of subject, verb, and object. Because the universe is built like that. But this we can come back to later. Okay, this is our logic, this is how we think, this is how the reality is. So, when there is nothing but the the pure being, this pure, unbounded consciousness, but its nature is to be conscious, what does it do? It reflects on itself, because there is nothing else. But by the process of reflecting on itself, it creates a break of symmetry, in the sense that it now can see itself as an observer, or can see itself as an observed, or can see itself as a process that connects the observer to the observed. So from unity, you have trinity. You have three values. Observer, observed, and process of observation. So there is one reality that sees itself as three values. Okay? So the three are, are they different from the one? No. There is nothing else. 
There is absolutely nothing else. But there is a perception, a point of view, that makes this one value, see, I can be an object, I can be a subject, and I can be the process connecting the subject to the object, the link between the two. Okay, now the question comes, how does, if I put my shoes in the subject's if I put my feet in the subject's shoes, how is the subject seeing things? Because now we have a colored perception. It's a colored perception. There is a perception of the one infinite, unbounded, pure existence, pure consciousness, which sees things from its own self as sees itself as observer, observed, and process of observation. Knower, knowing, and known. Subject, object, and process. It sees these three values. And it also sees the difference between them. Because they are there, it sees the difference. It's nature of consciousness to be conscious. If it's conscious of itself, it's also conscious that there are three values. You following me? So what we're adding here is a discriminative quality. What is discrimination? The ability to discriminate is what we call usually intellect. We are also adding a quality of identity. Because the object is different from the subject, is different from the process. Therefore, the object has an identity the process has an identity, and the object has an identity. So there are three egos, if you like, that have emerged from the one absolute reality, but it's all on the level of perception. It's all on the level of experience, on the level of the nature of consciousness knowing itself. Yet we have created an ego, and we have created the principle of intellect, which is discrimination. What is the intellect? The intellect is the power to discriminate, the power to see that this is red, this is blue, this is a flower, this is a table. The ability to discriminate or dissociate or identify is the intellect. So now the intellect sees three values. Intellect means the same consciousness. It sees three values and we can say it asks itself how does, if I go and put my feet in the shoes, this, this is a correct expression? <laughs> of the subject. How is the subject seeing things? Huh? It's like, oh, I could see things from different perspectives. I could see things from the perspective of the subject, or an object, or a process. But the perspective of the subject is different from the perspective of the object. So what is the perspective of the subject on the process, on the object, and on, my, on myself? So this creates new shade of perspectives. And like this, one shade to shade, 
you get into a cascade of shades of perception. You take red, blue, and green, and you mix uh, red with blue. You get cyan, no? right? Who are painters here? Purple. Purple. Or violet, depending how much. <laughs> you get purple. If you put uh, red and green, you get yellow. Correct? I told you I was a little bit uh, <laughs> colorblind. <laughs> Whatever, you get a third color. <laughs> so it's good you're awake. <laughs> so now you take the yellow and put it with this one and put this one with this one and you generate infinite number of shades and hues of colors, correct? That's all there is. That's the whole story. The, <laughs> the, difference, is, the difference is that if each color or each new perspective forgets that it is part of the whole, then you get separate identities. Separate identities mean individual realities. And so all that we all are is just different perspective of infinity on itself. Some are very narrow perspective, some are very broad perspective, and when we transcend, we see the full perspective of the original, infinite, unbounded, pure consciousness. But it's all a question of perspective. It's all a question of subjects looking at objects and a process in between them. And that's what creates a reality. So what is reality? Reality is a subject object and process coming together, either on the big primordial level as we have seen, or on any level of these other perspectives. Okay, when we say John sees Jane, John is the subject, sees is the process, Jane is the object. When we say Jane sees John, Jane is the subject, John is the object, sees is the process. When they come together, they create a moment of experience which we can call a bit of consciousness, B-I-T, a small bit of consciousness. That bit of consciousness is reality. If they are not coming together or nothing comes together, there is no physical reality. This fits very well with quantum mechanics and fits very well with physics and fits very well with understanding in modern terms and modern times of the interaction between the observer and the process of observation and the observed. So how come we feel like we are individual, we are different, we are completely independent and all of that? is because the perspectives have to be true perspectives 
And so in order to have a true perspective, the individual perceiver, the subject of expression or experience, assumes an independence from other subjects who are also experiencing. And therefore feels individually separate and different. Whereas we are all one thing, pure, absolute being, pure consciousness. But we happen to be caught in one kind of perspective of consciousness on itself. Some are limited perspectives, some are wider perspectives. When we transcend and expand our awareness and reach higher states of consciousness, we reach the true perspective. We find, ultimately, that's what we call the highest states of consciousness, unity consciousness. What is unity consciousness? Is you find that you are everything. That's unity consciousness. Those who have been following TM and going to the center and getting checkings and following advanced lectures, they know about the higher states of consciousness, going from transcendental to cosmic to God consciousness to unity consciousness. Unity consciousness is when I know I am the absolute pure being and I know everything is also the absolute pure being. And there is nothing, that, nothing but one unbounded grand field of consciousness. You know, in our university in, in Iowa, Maharshi University of Management, Maharshi created a song for the children they, and for the students, and they sing it. And it goes like this. I'm not going to sing, though. <laughs> It's one unbounded ocean of consciousness in motion. That's all there is. And when it knows itself, it knows itself, and the song goes like that. It knows to be knower, knowing, and known. It knows itself to be knowing, knower, and known. But it's all one unbounded ocean of consciousness in motion. And the rest are just perspectives of that ocean on itself. So we are all a perspective of consciousness on itself from different, different angles, different, different points of view. So what is the table then? What is the table made of? It's made out of consciousness. And it has its own perspective on everything. Yes. Now, the table is not like us. It doesn't maybe feel, I shouldn't be sitting here, what's the going on, you know. <laughs> this guy's, you know, putting his hands on me. <laughs> it doesn't have that level of consciousness. Because we have a gradation between infinite consciousness, unbounded consciousness, which is the pure being consciousness, and we have almost zero consciousness when it comes maybe to a little atom or to a little molecule or something. So when we say things are made of consciousness, it doesn't mean if you throw a stone, it's going to be kind of crying and scared that what's going to happen to me, I'm going to fall on the ground. 
Its consciousness is so limited that it is just conscious of what? Of gravity. It's conscious of the feel of gravity between quotation marks, but does not analyze gravity like we do, does not think like we do, does not feel like we do. You know? It's a gradation. If you take a plant, it is more conscious of more things than the stone. Its consciousness maybe takes in the, red, the light, it's conscious of the light, it's conscious of the humidity, it's conscious of the nourishment that comes from the roots, it's conscious of the wind, because it moves with the wind, it responds to the wind. So that consciousness is very, very limited, but a little more than the stone. You take your cat or your dog, they're conscious beings. They're much, much more conscious than a flower or a tree. Maybe they're not as conscious as you, but they might have feelings, they might have a kind of identity. Not all the animals have sense of identity. Research has shown that some animals, you know, when they see themselves in the mirror, they think it's some other animal, you know, they start playing with it or fighting with it. But there are animals like the dolphins, they immediately realize that it's themselves. So they have a little higher level of consciousness. So all of these are gradations of gradations and gradations of consciousness. Okay? I gave this talk at uh, <coughs> Stanford University. They invited us for uh, uh, consciousness. It was called Hacking Consciousness. It's on the internet, actually. It was selected as the... in 2016 or so. Best iTunes, whatever, something. <laughs> and um, after explaining all this and going into some mathematics, I asked questions to the student um, because they were taking it for credit. It was a credit course. And the question was, who has consciousness among these things that I'm listing on the screen? And I listed, you know, anything from a human being to an animal, animals to different animals to different things, the stone, this and that. And, um, you know, some who have been listening to the lecture, they said, all of them have consciousness. And I said, no. Actually, no one has consciousness. Everyone is consciousness. It's something that you don't just possess, it's something that you are. This is what we are made of. It's like taking a bracelet and saying this bracelet is made out of gold. So the material is gold and the bracelet is made out of gold. So the gold can make a bracelet, can make earrings, can make a pendant, can make a key, can make a statue. And all of these are made of the, the same material. When we look at it, we say it's a little statue, or it's a necklace, or it's a ring. And it's all gold. It's all gold, but it shapes itself, it modifies itself, it adjusts itself to look like an object which has its own identity, which is different from the basic material as if that it is made of. But consciousness is 
who we are, is what we are, is all there is, one unbounded ocean of consciousness in motion. And so, all of these shades of consciousness are what catch us, what we are caught by them in these different perspectives. The perspective of Mary, the perspective of Elizabeth, the perspective of John, the perspective of David. These are different perspectives, different perspectives of consciousness on itself. And if we think that they are independent of the reality of the unbounded consciousness, then we fall into the illusion, the maya. This is the term, if you hear maya, the term maya in Sanskrit means illusion. And people talk about maya as if the world does not exist. It's all a maya, it's all an illusion. That's not what it really means. The world actually exists. It is there. But the maya is that the table, the flower, and myself, from the material that we are made of, are different. Actually, we are all one unbounded consciousness with its different perspectives. So we are different, of course, but we are not different in essence. We can say the ring, the necklace, the statues are gold. They are gold, but they have a structure which differentiates them into a specific object. So that is the story of consciousness as we can see it from the Vedic perspective, from the knowledge that Marshi has passed on to us. And that is important because our techniques, our education focuses on developing consciousness. And developing consciousness means raising our life to a greater understanding, a greater perspective, and greater fulfillment. And the purpose of life, the purpose of living, the purpose of doing this is to actually go back to that infinite state of pure awareness, pure being. This is where fulfillment is because we then experience totality, experience wholeness, and live in fulfillment, which is the experience of bliss, the experience of happiness. Why? Because then there is nothing missing, then there is nothing lacking. The little tape here that we showed, uh, you know, is again about knowing oneself, loving oneself, understanding oneself, and not letting oneself think that I am just that individual with those problems, with those qualities, with those difficulties, and I wish I was like this, and I would love to be like that, etc. But knowing oneself to be that infinite, unbounded ocean of being, and it doesn't matter that there are circumstances and situations, these we can overcome if we have broader awareness, greater understanding, greater comprehension, which comes from not being narrow in our awareness, not being restricted in our consciousness. Restriction allows us only to experience that much, only to know that much, only to be that much. And openness, grandness of the reality of who we are opens to us the unified field and therefore allows us 
even on the physical, on the surface level, to live life in greater fullness and greater happiness and greater achievement. So this uh, half an hour session we can have for questions. If you have questions on what we have discussed uh, earlier or other questions that come to mind. Um, I have a couple of questions. Uh, you had mentioned before something briefly about death. And uh, you really didn't say much other than maybe we didn't know what it was. And that kind of left me thinking that, you know, in things I've studied previously that we know something about it. And I wondered if you could elaborate on that. And then my second question has to do with the political um, climate in the United States. <laughs> And that obviously we're experiencing different perspectives and... <laughs> you have been listening. <laughs> and that's a very high level way of saying it. Um, <laughs> and perhaps there is some light that you could shed on that that would help us all maybe be able to uh, understand what's going on in a way that would be useful. So in, in regard to death, we can say that uh, you know, there is a law in thermodynamics that nothing is um, ever lost or gained in a way. Everything is transformed. So the energy of one's being, if the body is left behind, must continue somehow in the cosmic reality of consciousness as a perspective that has evolved to a certain point and then maybe reintegrates itself in another way, either by you know coming into a heavenly situation or getting into a rebirth or getting into uh, new waves of progress that it can continue its path of evolution. So it's, uh, we don't talk very much about it because it touches a little bit on belief systems and one's own, uh, you know, religious uh, beliefs and uh, like that. So in that sense, our hope to be uh, more on the scientific side makes us less uh, forward in talking too much about this aspect of life, but um, you know, Everything can have a meaning, you know, some, uh, you know, I personally, for example, believe that life cannot just stop like this and nothing is there and um, that giving a chance to some soul to continue its development uh, also makes sense. Sometimes I, uh, somebody asked me this question and I had the idea of saying, you know, in these video games, you have these video games where shooter games and whatever, and uh, you go on the game, you know, like this, and you got shot and you die in the game. I, I don't think those who produce the game would sell many games if they didn't give a second chance. <laughs> <laughs> Probably the creator also, you know. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, we are individuals in, in society and like our body is made out of many cells, 
society is made of many individuals. And the collectiveness of the individual activity creates what we call the collective consciousness. We can look at our brain as being made out of individual neurons, and these neurons actually have their life, you know. A cell, which is a neuron, has a nucleus, which is like a brain. It has a digestive system. It has its mitochondria. It has its uh, tracts. It has its breathing system. It takes in oxygen, develops things. It has its skin, which is its membrane. It has its activity. So as an uh, identity, a neuron has its own identity. We can say its own perspective <laughs> also, which is very lively perspective. And together, the neurons in our brain create a bigger perspective, because each one perspective in a complex relationship with all the other perspectives creates a bigger perspective. That is what we call our perspective, our human individual perspective, which actually ultimately is made out of the perspectives of our liver, plus the perspective of our heart, plus the perspective of our brain, and different parts of the brain, and all of that. And that makes us what we are as an individual. We feel that society is also like an individual, and it has a collective reality, which makes it collectively uh, behave as uh, almost an individual. We don't see this because we are engrossed in our own perspective. In the same way as an individual neuron does not see the wholeness of the activity necessarily. So an individual neuron doesn't know that you are you know, uh, thirsty or uh, doesn't experience pain or doesn't experience this and that or love or happiness, fulfillment. But the whole of the brain somehow creates a wholeness which is more than the sum of its parts. So perspectives upon perspectives, they add up. And so you can add too many colors and get such a shade of color. And that is for the individual as well as for society. So the decisions of leaders in society, the decisions of governments in society are motivated, manipulated, or influenced, or like this, by the collective awareness of the society. And therefore, we like to think of the solution for all these situations, or whatever situation that arises, rather than trying to analyze too much the problem, because we know the solution. And the solution is to create a coherent society, a coherent thinking. And for that, we have a system, and that has been proven. When many people come together and meditate together, they create an effect which is calming, uh, which creates reduction in conflict, which creates better decision-making, and all of that. In the same way as a laser beam is created by a few uh, you know, photons, doing coherent activity together that entrains the other ones and then there is a more more coherent powerful beam that comes out because you know laser is the same wavelength as the light here it's not like stronger than the wavelengths of the light the only difference is that here the photons are jumping around in a co incoherent way 
So they create a spread of light, which is nice, we enjoy, it's good, it's not laser in this case. But when you, uh, when you put them in coherent functioning, which means they, the waves go up and down at the same time, then there is a beam that can you know, create a hole in a, in a mountain, create a tunnel, if it's so powerful. So coherence can create very powerful effects. And there are many scientific studies that show that when a number of people meditate together, particularly practice the advanced techniques, the cities, then there is reduction in conflict in society, better decision-making by the government, better relation with other governments, and more peace and prosperity in society. So that's, you know, lucky one. We are here together, we'll be meditating, we'll be doing programs, and, you know, it might soften the West Palm Beach, Palm Beach area. <laughs> So are you are we saying that unless it cannot unless it can't be unless it cannot be proven scientifically therefore it does not exist with regard to the explanation with um, death and that uh, a belief system because um, I've spent a lot of time as many of us perhaps have studying ancient other wisdoms and, and knowledge, which of course is coming from the same source, but it also describes in detail about reincarnation and so forth. So, in, and it has been not necessarily proven scientifically, but the people who have expounded that, we have come to realize or believe or hope <laughs> that they know what they're talking about. So. Could you just expand on that just a little bit more, please? Yeah, I mean, I, I use this statement in the sense of, for science, it cannot be like this. But science, you know, is not the end all of knowledge as it is today. You know, science is a system, a systematic system of exploring reality. And if we want to take a scientific approach, we have to say, well, what does science say about this or about that? But in my answer, I guess I hinted quite strongly to my, you know, first even from a scientific perspective, the fact that there is conservation and therefore everything, everything uh, changes, is modified, is not lost, nothing is lost, everything is transformed. And then uh, my personal favorite uh, belief of you know, creating games that sell rather than that don't sell. <laughs> so it seems like that game of life is selling very well. And, you know, we all get second chances. So uh, if you want to ask what is the perspective from a Vedic perspective or a Hindu perspective or, you know, other perspectives, other older interpretations, you know, of Christianity or new ones or Judaism and do they hint to something or more? It becomes a discussion which is more on the personal belief system. So since we don't want to give any imposition on anyone to take any path in the religious side, we just have to stay in the open all possibilities side. Um, 
one has to do with orientation and this perspective here with these bundles, packets of energy, apparently are happier if they're facing east when they're <laughs> sleeping and meditating. How, am I trying to make a structure in the brain happy by doing that? It's a very good point because there is a relationship between uh, everything and everything. Some relationships are very minor and insignificant, some relationships are more profound and important. And so there is a magnetic field of the earth, there is the energy from the sun. And so in the Vedic tradition there is the system of uh, Stapatya Veda, which is the Vastu Vidya, knowledge of Vastu, which has a quite a detailed uh, information about the relationships of, you know, positions in the house, the entrance, and, you know, when you're working, what do you do, which direction you do when you sleep, which direction, and all of that. And so all of these are influences from, be it the magnetic field of the earth, and, um, or the, you know, the sun rays in the morning, the relationship with the air, the prana, the temperature. So all of these things are important. See, the brain has, has a magnetic sensors also. <coughs> About, uh, must be like 25 years ago or so, 20 years ago, Marshi asked me to dig uh, into this because he was starting to, to bring out the vastu and the relationship of housing and direction. And he asked me if there is something in the brain that detects magnetism. I didn't know much about yet because it wasn't well known. So I went digging in, into the, the literature and I found there was some scientists who actually managed to find that the human brain does have a magnetic sense of orientation. And uh, Marshi was very happy with this and we talked about it and we took his research and we publicized it to say, you know, there is, a, there is logic to our craziness, you know. <laughs> you have to have your house <laughs> from the east and all of that. And uh, I'm saying this story because three years ago, these guys got the Nobel Prize for this discovery about magnetism in the brain. So it's very interesting. Then the follow-up question is this idea of the day being divided up in the three doshas. And with daylight savings time, does it <laughs> screw it all up and it's not 10 to 2 anymore when we should be eating because of the fires in the belly and the suns of the eyes? Is it now 9 to 1? It's, you know, the time that we decide is a human decision. Um, what it says is when the sun is highest in the sky, this is noon time because uh, you can be in, in um, Norway or the north of Sweden in January or December and you have six months, you know, where the sun can barely shows up at noon <laughs> and then dives again. So that's the highest point and that is what considered the best point. Now, whether we call it 1 o'clock or 12 o'clock, it's a convention. I wonder if um, communication such as the present speech into a microphone and the coherence 
uh, likewise is part two in the three-part bit of consciousness, which is a process of observation. And if that's true, could you explain the mechanics of a bit of consciousness in um, non-local communication, for example, ESP, Amaharishi, uh, Yangya, or a um, as yet undeveloped uh, technique of consciousness? Thank you. Yeah. Uh, any, any connection between two elements, whether through speech, through thought even, through um, video conferencing, through anything, is a collapse, is a, an attention. What is important is the attention. Now, the attention can take place through any of the senses or through communication, uh, verbally or sometimes even thought. So the thought can actually also collapse the wave function. Because, you know, when the observers in uh, the experiment do the experiment, they don't even talk to the electron, you know. <laughs> so they send these beams of electron into two slits, the two-slit experiment, this is m mostly, and then when there is an observer, the electron behaves like a particle. When there is no observer, the electron behaves like a wave. It just spreads out. It's amazing. But it's enough that there is an observer that the electron starts behaving like a particle. It's literally, you know, hits the, you know, the particle and all that. And so, uh, just the presence of the observer, which means it's not just talking or speaking or this, but even the presence, the thinking, the observation process itself collapses the wave function. Um, how does the meditation affect the depression process as an illness? Um, it enlivens the proper functioning of the nervous system. In depression, Often depression is a physical thing also. It's a set of chemicals that are secreted in lesser amount, like say serotonin or dopamine or like that. And they can be due to uh, genetics, they can be due to circumstances in life. Uh, and then once whole picture and image and perception of things is kind of clouded and depressed in a sense. So, uh, by opening up the reserves of the brain and integrating the coherence of the brain, then what we see is an enlivenment of certain uh, uh, chemicals in the brain, hopefully to uh, that alleviate depression. There are some studies on anxiety and, and depression that show very good response through meditation. And the process is the same. It's really by going to a deeper level of rest, creating greater coherence in the nervous system, and the body is able to heal itself. It's kind of a healing process. We can say that depression is a stress like a stress. See, when we use the term stress, it's quite a wide range of things. Stress can mean physical stress, mental stress, can mean um, you know, fear, can mean anxiety, can mean depression, can mean... So whatever is not allowing the physiology to function perfectly well is a stress, which means 
Anybody who is not in unity consciousness has some kind of stress. Because we are assuming that the normal, fully uh, developed physiology should be able to uphold uh, cosmic consciousness and God consciousness and unity consciousness. How does consciousness create matter? And you talked about how matter sees itself and then can perceive itself as the subject or the object or the process of seeing, and this is discrimination. And then I didn't catch where that state then creates matter. Would you please describe that <laughs> transition? See, what we're saying is matter is consciousness. So, in effect, if you want to say that matter is something separate than consciousness, there is no matter. So, there is no matter whatsoever in the way we perceive matter as being separate from consciousness. But matter is there as a perspective of consciousness on itself. And in the range of perspectives, you have the perspective of an enlightened individual, absolute, pure being, a divine kind of experience. You have the perspective of a person who is stressed. You have a perspective of uh, an elephant. You have a perspective of a tree. You have a perspective of a flower. You have a perspective. So these are also perspectives, you see? We call them as flower, elephant, but they are perspectives. Because what are the perspectives? You know, what do you mean perspective of consciousness on itself? It's what we are, you know. I, my perspective on the universe is this. Your perspective is that. And, you know, that's consciousness. That's what we have. We have consciousness. And what do we see? We see flowers, we see trees, we see human beings, we see friends, we see nations, we see coherence, we see incoherence, we see fighting, we see war, we see also peace, we see growth, we see development. All of these that you see are the perspectives. Now, you know, the perspective of X on Y and the perspective of Y on X are different perspectives, but in this sense, the possibilities of perspectives are almost infinite. And then how they come together, then you call them a flower, you call them a table, you call them a planet. And then the mistake is to say it's different from consciousness. It has been created out of consciousness as if something different. But what I'm saying is not created out as a separate thing. It's just a perspective. You follow? It's not always easy to make the transition between that which is not material and that which we call material. See, what we call material is a certain kind of perspective of consciousness on itself. Because you could ask me the question, so you're saying there is one absolute pure being and then it becomes subject, object, and process. These are three perspectives. And then they 
start interacting with each other like colors, adding one color to another and then a new color. Then you add this new color to that color and then a third color, a fourth, a fifth. And then you can keep creating hues and tints and hues and tints ad infinitum till eternity. Okay? Now you tell me, what are you talking about? What are these perspectives? If we want to be real, what does it mean that now I am at the one millionth shade of perspective? It might mean, look, standing in front of the mic. That is the one millionth perspective, you know? It's like a, f a movie or a, a th an author. An author creates a, a book and creates characters. And they can be anything. They can be a unicorn, they can be, uh, <laughs> they can be anything. These are just imaginary things, but when you're in the book, they interact with each other they are these different realities of the creator of the book. I had a question about perspective. Um, and as the more, the more I practice these different techniques, um, I become more aware of my programming, which is I'm an American, I'm a woman, I speak like these languages and all this kind of stuff. And, and I'm becoming aware of all of that programming, the cultural programming, around that and and then it becomes well is that my reality is not not the reality so the question i have for you is as you become more aware of all of these things that are imposed upon you culturally etc um and you want to get past them or whatever i mean are there um i i guess it's just I, i'm just interested to know like do you become a more global person as you become a more enlightened being? Do you then not have these programs anymore? I mean, so that's, that's sort of what I'm grappling with now is like, you know, getting beyond that and getting to a more universal truth. Like, is there that? I, I don't, I, I'm not. No, no, you, you said it well, but I'll, I'll ask your questions in a different, I'll, I'll turn around your question or your experience, let's say, and say that, it's not that you are suddenly becoming aware of your individuality in terms of nationality, name, language, and all of that. What is happening is you're becoming more and more aware of your universality, and it contrasts with what you are always thinking what you are, you have been. And that's why you feel, oh, what's going on here? I'm, after all, American, I am after all a woman, I am after all also an English, Italian speaker, and, and I have these realities. These are things which you took for granted before. You used to feel that's what I am, and you didn't think twice about it. You were bound by these realities. When you started to realize your true reality as being infinite, absolute, and more universal, then these kind of jump like this and you're afraid to lose them or you're afraid, you know, you're seeing them as are they me, are they not me and now you start asking questions about them whereas before they used to be a matter of fact you know, which means uh, of course I am American, of course I speak English, who cares, you know, this is what I am 
But now when you say, well, I feel I am more the absolute, I feel more integrated inside, then what about these, these little realities? And for this, you know, we use an example. We say somebody was living in the hut all their life. They have a little hut and it's, you know, they have leaks when it rains and they have, <laughs> you know, difficult conditions and not always good heating and all of that. And then um, they improve it, they work on it, it's a better hut, so it's their, their doing, it's their life, it's their reality. And now they have the chance to live in a much better place, in a grand castle or something, <laughs> okay? And so where, of course, they'll pack their things and go, but there is always that kind of melancholy, a sense of losing something, because you identify with the hut. It's your life, you've grown there, I have memories, I have associations. How am I gonna leave this and go to this big house? It's fine, I'm happy to go, but there is some association, some kind of melancholy, you know. There is a French uh, writer who said that everything that we leave behind is part of ourself. Even the most desired changes create a melancholy because everything we leave behind us is a little bit part of ourself. So, it is part of, our, of yourself to be the American, the English, the woman, the this, the that. And it's something that defines you, that you love it, that it's great. And uh, suddenly you were gonna say, I am universal, unbounded, <laughs> pure being, you know. <laughs> I don't wanna lose... Uh, the DMV is not gonna take that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to lose Lindsay and all of that. I love Lindsay. I love the, the woman. I love the English side. I love the whatever. Yeah, I just, I, it was just sort of something that's sort of been coming up for me because I see it as like, you know, we are programmed and then the programming falls away and to some extent or you become aware of the programming whether or not it's still there. So, I don't know. That was just my... Yeah, yeah. But the thing is when you get to universality, you don't lose really identity. You don't lose the self as being who you are in the physical reality and you don't lose interest in it, you don't lose passion for it, for your, you know, nationhood, for your womanhood, for your... It's, it's still you, you know, but now you see it from a universal perspective, from a grand perspective. And at some point you wonder if you're losing it and that's what sometimes creates the contrast. Well, thank you. Sometimes people, when they are transcending, some, peop some of us might have this experience. And I, I, I like to say it so that you realize it. Particularly those who are starting to practice TM. The, the mind starts settling down, settling down, and it goes so deep, so deep. And sometimes there is a sense of losing boundary and then you feel as if you're falling into the void. And some people get scared a little bit. Am I gonna lose myself? Am I go where am I going? Is this death? Is this what? You know, if you transcend very quickly and deeply, you might have, have that moment of doubt about, will I ever come back, you know? 
So I can guarantee you come back. So <laughs> don't worry about it. <laughs> Actually, once you come back, you'd say, oh, I wish I had not come back. <laughs> so many years ago, Maharishi ushered in the dawn of the Age of Enlightenment. Seems like a long time ago, actually. And we've all made, feel like we've made progress, I think, in terms of our own evolution. What do we need to look for in the world to usher in, to see the, the, fruit, the fulfillment of uh, enlightenment in our world? See, there are two things here. When Marcy launched that, the world wasn't necessarily in a great shape. It was, you know, there was still the Cold War and, uh, you know, potential of uh, nuclear war and all of that. I remember when I first came to, to Boston to go to MIT, I was, I was striking. Uh, some guy had a uh, driving, you know, plate on the driving uh, license, but on the front, I think in the U.S., I wasn't used to it because we used to have plates on both sides, but in the U.S., you have to have it only in the back. And in the front, he was hanging something it, uh, like this, a plate, and it says, one nuclear bomb can ruin your whole day. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the world was in, in a different state. But how come Mercy declares the Age of Enlightenment? But he, because he has seen the mechanics of it. He had seen the technique of it, and he has seen that it works. Because he had it, we had the techniques, we have shown that 1% of the people practicing TM will reduce crime. We had the cities you know, already coming, and square root of 1% can transform things. We have done the studies. And therefore, for Marishi, it's enough that we have the tools and it's only a question of time when governments will actually understand this, realize this, and adopt this. And it's going to happen, and that will change everything. Now, what has happened since then is actually not as bad as it sounds. You know, uh, it looks horrible from some perspectives. <laughs> but, uh, you know, we have, we have looked at research and uh, publications, even in the Washington Post and the New York Times and all of this, where they show that, I mean, that the progress is absolutely amazing. I mean, books are coming out about infant mortality, about uh, less wars in the world, about uh, less casualties, accidents, uh, you know, poverty, uh, conflicts. It's, it's amazing when you look at the real data. But what we hear usually is uh, all the bad news because this is, you know, what is uh, making people alert and interested to look at because they are afraid of what happened, so the bad news is something that they want to know. And they don't highlight so much good news. You can imagine like uh, a news channel that gives you news about the fact that everybody is eating well and <laughs> you know, there is no scarcity of food. And today we have found that 
you know, some people who used to live in this country, they, they have now more nourishment. And we never hear this, but it's happening. So we can look forward to continued... Yes, continued progress. And there is another aspect which is living, you know, the age of enlightenment or living one's fulfillment within one's own life, one's own circle and expanding that not living the life of others, you know. If you want to always be um, concerned about every single thing and say that the world is in a horrible situation because there was some crime that happened in one area or some bomb that fell in another area, then the perspective is colored by these news. Whereas you have so much to enjoy and, you know, accept to, to live. It doesn't mean irresponsibility. We are people of the world. We have wide consciousness. We want everyone to be happy. And that's why we meditate for also not only for ourselves, but to help society and all of that. But we shouldn't be overwhelmed by such uh, things and see life as a horrible thing just because somewhere in some place we don't know why something happened. Um, speaking as a TM teacher, there are a number of people who probably for the first time are seeing this painting of the Vedic tradition. And I was wondering if you would explain. Ah, very nice, thank you. The thing is we had a meeting before <laughs> and then I explained it and I kept going so. Um, <laughs> This knowledge that we are discussing and technology comes from a tradition. It's not invented, you know, the things we share, we think, we practice, comes from a very long tradition. And this tradition is called the Vedic tradition. Veda is a term in Sanskrit that means knowledge. And Vedic tradition is a tradition of knowledge that comes from ancient India. It is not in any way like Hinduism or specific religion, I mean, it can resemble certain practices and it can, many things, beautiful things have come out of it uh, and have become interpretations and religions and philosophies. But Manshi has looked at it as a pure science and science of life, subjective science. So there is the objective science where you study matter and the material things. And there is subjective science, which is you study your experiences, you study your introspection. And these ancient traditions have been more on the inward direction, on discovering things within rather than on the outside. So whereas in the West we have been mostly focused on studying the object of perception, studying uh, you know, how things relate with each other on a material level, in this ancient tradition they have studied the mental aspect, the relationships of the mind and body, but from the mental side, from the natural law side, the laws of nature as experienced in consciousness. So they went directly to consciousness. Now we're talking about perspectives of consciousness. You can study the perspective separately, or you can go to the source and study consciousness itself, and then look outwards from that from having been inwards, then project the inward-outward rather than the outward-inward. So we call this self-referral versus object-referral. So this tradition is a tradition of actual research in consciousness, 
but of knowledge that has been given from the perspective of consciousness and awareness. And all this knowledge and discoveries within consciousness, we call them cognitions. The rishis have cognized, they have experienced something in their awareness, and they have explained it and or give it out and passed it on from teacher to student like that. So the tradition that has taught us how to teach TM, how to, you know, all the knowledge about it, how to grow in higher states of consciousness, comes from this passing from teacher to student. And so whenever we teach, we teach with this in mind, so that the, the students who learn know that it's not an invention like I just came up with everything that I'm telling you <laughs> yesterday and all the techniques and all that. They come from this tradition. So this is our recognition of the tradition that has given us this knowledge. Um, in August of 2000, 10 years before I started meditating, I was in a room, in a hotel room like this, and I had this experience that I can only describe as, as I just became absorbed with everyone in the room. There was no separation between me and them. I was fully conscious. I wasn't meditating. There was conversations going on. It lasted for about two minutes. It was blissful feeling. And never had that experience again, uh, other than about a year ago during meditation I had a similar feeling state, but I was meditating, so it was different because there wasn't a whole lot of intellectual mind stuff going on. And so my question is, is like, I hear David Lynch talk about every time he meditates, he experiences bliss. I don't experience bliss. I experience nothing at best, which is great. <laughs> but, but, you know, it's, it's, it's a, I guess it's a pleasant experience. I guess my question is, is, is what is the access to that bliss? Like, I, I don't understand. I, there's something about it that escapes me. Like, why does David Lynch get that? <laughs> <laughs> because he's David Lynch. <laughs> You know, we don't judge our meditation from the subjective experience that we get. If it's an easy process and you're going through it easily and you're saying you experience nothingness, so it is a very interesting term that you use because to experience nothingness is a huge thing. You know, to experience nothingness, which means you have the experiencer, but you don't have an object of experience which means the experience is actually experiencing itself or himself, which is yourself. So you're experiencing yourself and there is no object at all, nothingness. That means you are in the absolute. You are experiencing the self by itself and your expectation is that you always would have to have an object in your perception either a thought or an image or a mantra or something. And suddenly <coughs> you experience nothingness. That means you're transcended. And so the expectation of bliss <coughs> is, 
is, uh, is um, an expectation of what is actually bliss, what is happiness. So you added when you described your experience that actually it's quite all right, you know, it's quite nice, I like it, you know, but so what does David Lynch mean when he experienced bliss, whereas what you mean when you experience nothingness and it's nice, could be the same thing, but seen from a different perspective. <laughs> <laughs> the main thing is it's easy, you're transcending, you're going there, there is the experiencer with experiencing himself, in your case, and there is no object of perception, and that means you're experiencing unboundedness, and you like it. So, you know, that is bliss. I speak from the perspective of a mother, and all of us have a mother uh, to give credit for even being here, but the Copenhagen interpretation was really powerful when you were first discussing it about the waves, and then the focus is what brings the particles to fruition. Immediately it resonated the power of a parent just observing, even at a, whether it's a playground with a toddler or a child in college, you know, checking in on them, or an adult getting married, just that presence of energy that we are focusing upon the object of our affection, whether it be a child or I, I know another relationship, but particularly that of a mother. And uh, that really opened up things for me, and it, it uh, solidified how important it is for us to look with deep affection at the positive aspects within those that we love, particularly our children, because all those other particles are waving about, and we can put form to the negative aspects, or we can put form to the positive, and um, so I want to thank you for that. And um, the second aspect, and the final, since I get to close, I'm grateful for that, is how we can just bring more bliss into our lives, because I think it is true as uh, the gentleman prior to uh, my question, you know, we, we are always in comparison. We can have a great relationship, but then we see someone has something better. We have like good kids, but then someone's even like, so that comparative thing can, you can feel great for like a nanosecond. And um, <laughs> is there a way that perhaps we can like hold on to it in a steadier way, in a regular way, day-to-day -day living? And I like all of that interpretation. I uh, love the but I'm not going to be able to devote my life to all of that ancient science. So perhaps you who have can just share it with us in one golden nugget. <laughs> Beautiful. Thank you for your first part of the question or the comment. It's very accurate and very good. And the second part, <coughs> it's really a path. And, and the path is... Um, rest and activity, rest and activity. And if we have enough rest and good uh, anchoring in the self, life grows in greater waves of fulfillment. And so why sometimes it happens faster and other times it happens slower? Why is it that we compare ourselves to others and we want more and therefore the desire is compared to the achievement and we lose our bliss a little bit for a few minutes or a few days. It's actually not a negative thing. It's a positive thing in the sense that the nature of life is to grow. 
And no matter what, we will always want more. Always we will want more. You know, you get the best uh, car, the best uh, mansion, the best house, uh, the best position, you know, suddenly you make lots of money, you become the president of the United States. <laughs> and life all becomes even more and more terrible for you. <laughs> that is because we are looking always for more and that's the nature of life. So we shouldn't escape from that. It doesn't matter if I see something else and it makes me feel that, oh, I would have liked that or I shouldn't have think like, like this because I should be more content and all of this, it, it doesn't work like this uh, because you always want more. What you can remember is you can get more than the most inwards because the unified field which we are talking about is what we already are, who we already are. And if we evaluate ourselves based on the outer, it can never be more. So don't try to get it, it's not there. It is the inward that is the source of all strength, intelligence, happiness and power. And very important, it is this inward that allows us to achieve more in the outward. So meditation we say always is for action, meditation is for achievement. Meditation is for success in the outside world because we do have, when we grow in consciousness, when we grow in anchoring ourselves within ourselves, we have a greater ability to act and to help and to grow. You know, in the Vedas there is a saying that the Rishi who teaches and takes care of others or whatever is better than the Rishi who doesn't. The Rishi is the seer, the knower, the sage, the master, the teacher. So, in a sense, when we have anchored ourselves within ourselves, what we want is naturally to see society change. Because even when you reach happiness and fulfillment and higher states of consciousness within yourself, what will be your next desire because we want more? What you will want is everyone to know that and everyone to experience that and everyone to grow in that and everyone to live in bliss and happiness. Why? Because this is the nature of life is to grow and we are here to expand happiness and to expand fulfillment and we can do it in this body and when it's done in this body we want it in this body and this body and this body and all the bodies around the world. That's the nature of life. That's why people have compassion for what happens in Africa or the Middle East or in, in, you know, to the people in Korea or this or that. Because we feel one at some level, we feel we're not going to be fully happy if the news says there is crime and this and that. When we will be fully happy is also when the whole world is in peace and happiness. So that's the nature of life and it's a wonderful adventure of life and we have a technology and knowledge to achieve it for ourselves and for society. Thank you for tuning into Dr. Tony Nader, the podcast. 
And if you're interested in learning more from Dr. Nader, please follow him on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube.